Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Kia ora, Wellington. It's Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM. It's Tuesday, the 4th of July at 5.05pm, and this is B-Side Stories, stories of the people who make Wellington tick. I'm Laura Kewen in the live studio today. And my guest today is Bailey Lobb. Bailey is a video, performance, and installation artist who works with color, soft structures, movement, and spatial interventions to create immersive environments. Picture like the big silk parachutes that you may have played with as a kid, where you can be inside or outside a colorful bubble of fabric. She also uses her art to explore her experience of disability and autism. Bailey's exhibition of textile installations, exploring the pursuit of self-regulation and sensory support, called Sensory Self-Portraits, is heading to the Nelson Arts Festival in October. Welcome to the studio, Bailey. Hi. Thank you for having me. So, uh, I am going to ask you a little bit about your background. And I was able to share some amazing photographs of your colorful artwork online, so people should check those out. But to start off, um, where are you from and how did you come to be in Wellington? Um, I'm originally from Wanganui, and this is actually my second time living in Wellington. So I moved here straight out of um, high school and did university here. Um, and then I decided to pursue um, art as a career and moved to Sydney to study there. So after my study and a year of travel in Ireland, my partner and I moved back to Wellington um, in late 2019. So we were able to just kind of get ourselves established and meet some people in the art community before the pandemic hit. Mm. <laughs> yeah, very fortunate timing. <laughs> very good. Um, how was your studies in Sydney? What kind of, what kind of art study did you do? Uh, so I studied at the University of New South Wales and I did a mixed major in textiles and um, sculpture performance and installation, which is one field. Um, and I chose the university because um, when I went to visit, it just seemed like the most freewheeling place um, where you could really do anything. Um, and I, I had a great time. I learned a lot, particularly in the textiles field. Um, I initially took the, the course as a way to rule it out um, because I had always um, been drawn to textiles. My family is very fibre-oriented. Um, and so I thought, I'll just take it just to make sure that, you know, I definitely don't want to explore that because I already know what's involved with that. Um, and I loved it. And I ended up doing the mixed major, and I'm really glad I did because it's now the core medium that I work with. Wow. So you mentioned that you have a textile fabrics family. Yes. <laughs> Tell me um, more about that. Have you always been interested in, in I, creating with um, fabrics? Yes, I have. I um, I grew up in a family that, um, so I had an auntie that made uh, felt hats and scarves. Um, everyone in my family could spin um, there, there was a lot of kind of weaving and knitting and sewing. So I was very immersed in that from a young age. And sometimes it feels a little bit like I was raised to be an artist because that's just the nourishment that I got 
from a really early age. Incredible. Yeah. So can you explain what spinning is? I'm not oh. quite sure. It's like making thread? Yeah, making yarn. So making yarn. Um, you take the kind of – it's uh, the wool has been – combed so that all of the uh, fiber is running in the same direction and then you use like a treadle wheel so you're um, you're using your foot to make the wheel spin and then you pull this fiber through and it spins into a beautiful piece of yarn wow it's a really nice process (laughs) that sounds like such a like an old timey like hobby like is some something that's quite difficult to hold on to you know through the generations but that's something that your family valued obviously yes and um my cousin still spins I'm learning how to spin again in a very haphazard manner um yeah it's a great it's a really satisfying thing to do that's incredible um so uh how do you use your textile skills for your art now like what 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 is your art like um I always find my heart art quite hard to describe because it's like um very large and (laughs) colorful and um everything starts from the cloth and from my own experience so um the stuff that is that most people would be kind of most familiar with would be the large scale bubbles that you can get inside. Um, and those are all uh, created using my uh, pattern drafting skill set and then sewing and dyeing. So um, yeah, I'm, I work from scale models with those and then I draw all of the seam lines and the doors and then I chop them up and uh, blow them up to real size and then I sew them together so Mm. there's quite a lot involved with that process and that is all using the skill set that I learned um, from a very young age yeah and my more recent work then goes into the knitting space um, as well as soft sculpture and yeah so it's it's everywhere in there is that whole family history of textiles really runs through my practice how big when you say your <laughs> bubbles are big, how big should people picture? Uh, so the smallest one is 1.8 metres tall and uh, 1.5 kind of square. And then the largest one is 7 metres long by 7 metres and 3.5 metres tall. S- 7 metres. Yes. <laughs> it's That's very large. Very big. <laughs> yes. So um, it- at the time I made it, it was larger than my actual house. Um. (laughs) so it must be very special installation space that that actually fits into yeah so um that work was created for toy ponaki which is just on abel smith street and it's shaped kind of like a kidney so it goes right around the corner um and so i've shown that exhibition a couple of times since then and it's always really interesting challenge to fit that large work into a new space. Um, gallery spaces are often kind of funny shapes or long and narrow, um, and that work is always challenging to work out how to get it in. <laughs> um, and you mentioned, like, colour and dyeing as well. Can you talk about, like, for people in Radioland who haven't seen the photos, uh, what's what's the colour like for your bubbles inside and out? 
so the the work itself and the idea behind the exhibition is about bathing in colour. So they're really high saturations. Um, there's a hot pink work, which is, it's called Jelly Bean, and it is kind of the colour of a bright pink jelly bean. Um, there's a bright orange work, which would be kind of similar to a mandarin. So again, quite bright. Um, and then a sunshine yellow piece and the largest work is, um, it's called Big Blue and the colour sits right in between purple and blue on the colour spectrum. So it's a really strong but warm blue tone. Um, and that's probably the darkest work as well. The other ones are quite bright and light, whereas Big Blue has a depth to it that's mm. a bit different. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I do hand dye the works and I, I still, I'm very particular about colour. Um, so that exhibition, when I first started designing it, I had only previously used commercial colours. And so it was a real opportunity for me to actually think about my installation work in a more painterly manner and think about layering the colours. And when you see the works, they, because it's hand dyed, the fabric has almost like a texture from the dye. So um, it's particularly evident in the orange work where the fabric actually looks like skin or butterfly wings because of the patterning from the dye. So it's quite beautiful. Wow. And do your other works that you were describing that you are using knitting, are, are they also really big and using bright colours? They are quite large for knitting. Um, so I'm working at a fairly fine gauge. When you talk about knitting, the size of the stitch is the gauge that you're working at. So um, my work is at a relatively fine gauge for the scale of the finished work. Um, the work that I am currently have on the knitting machine is going to be around 2 metres by 1.5 metres when it's finished. So that's quite a large piece and it, I'm expecting it to take around 400 hours to complete that. Um, and yes, I do use really bright colours across the board. <laughs> um, I'm a very bright human. It's on <laughs> brand for me. Um, so I dress bright, I live in bright colours and that's just for me the most um, enlivening you know, type of colour to be in is, is bright and warm and colourful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's good. You've got a signature style. <laughs> I it's <do>. bold. <laughs> um, uh, tell me about how people interact with your art and how it makes them feel. Okay. Um, most of my work is touchable. So it's a little bit unusual because a lot of the time in galleries you're not allowed to touch things and I am the naughty person that touches something fluffy when the guard is not looking. Um, for me, making work that's touchable is really deliberate because personally I find it really difficult to engage with work and fully understand it when I can't touch it. Um, unless there's like a sample where I can understand what it feels like and then I will start to... <laughs> feel like I know what that work is about. So it's all very tactile. Um, there are, 
you know, you can stroke the fabric, you can get inside the works if they're installation. Um, you can, like with this new work on my knitting machine, it's beaded. So you'll be able to rub the beads and roll them through your hands. Um, so it's all very tactile. And I'm not that pres prescriptive about how people experience the work. Um, the main thing for me is that the works generate conversation. Um, so I do work from disability experience. It's, it's often conversations that people are uncomfortable with having. Um, but because my work is quite playful and colourful and kind of inviting, um, it starts people off with having conversations that they might not otherwise think to start with their friends and family that have come with them. Amazing. So tell me a little bit more about that. Um, how uh, How is that disability experience expressed through your art? Um, so it starts from a personal place. I create work that helps me to understand my own experience. So it's partly processing. Um, it's partly frameworks for self-care. And then there'll be a little bit as well that might be experiential. So um, showcasing an experience to help others understand what that experience is like. Um, and then when I put that out into the world, that's when I'm thinking about, you know, the conversations that might come from that. I really do think that art has a way of communicating with people that sometimes language doesn't quite quite hit especially in the experiential space mm. um so yeah for me it's my disability experience is everywhere in my practice but it's also my practice helps me as a disabled person to understand how to care for myself and how to build environments for myself that help me to thrive yeah yeah and is um building tactile uh, artworks and things that people can interact with and uh, environments that people can enter is that um, does it change their mindset or is it supposed to give them a new perspective um, sometimes it changes people's mindsets and sometimes it's about helping people to understand the impact of the everyday things in their life so with the with the bubbles that you go inside um, I really encourage people to think about how the different colors and different spaces make them feel because we often live in really bland spaces there's a lot of beige going around particularly in Wellington um, and People come into the spaces and they, you know, sometimes will have really strong reactions to one of the colours, be it positive or negative. And what I really encourage, particularly when I'm in artist talks, is to have a conversation about how did that colour make you feel and why do you think it made you feel that way and, and help people to understand that they can build these things into their everyday lives. You know, it's not just disabled people that benefit from access and supports. Everybody does. And we can do that in our own homes, our own environments, and really build spaces, you know, for each of us as uni unique humans. Yeah. So um, 
one um, question I had for you is like, do you see your art as disability activism or advocacy? Which you've sort of touched on that, but um, I thought that was a more provocative question, a way of putting it to you. Um, yeah, I definitely do. I think that for me, because it starts from a personal place, um, I can become quite passionate about, you know, driving that conversation in the work and exploring different things. Um, but because I'm releasing it out into the wilds and, you know, everyone can interact with it, it's naturally going to be kind of advocacy or activism depending on what type of work it is often. Sometimes the work will lend, it, lend itself more to an activist stance and other times to an advocate stance. Um, but I also live and breathe that. I do a lot of, um, you know, I would do panel discussions around disability in the arts. I also incorporate disability discussion into every artist talk that I do and into workshops. You know, for me, because it's a big part of my life, I can't just switch it off. Um, it does come through in everything that I do. And yeah, as I said before, it, art is such a good medium for starting that conversation. So to me, it feels very natural to, yeah, come at it from an activist stance. Do you enjoy doing um, art artist talks and workshops? Love it. You love I it? absolutely love it, yeah. yeah. Um, I... I'm always thrilled when someone asks me to do an artist talk, um, no matter the audience. Uh, last year I did a talk to a group of members from the National Kitchen and Bathroom Association, which <laughs> felt really random when I was asked, <laughs> but it was an amazing opportunity, amazing audience. Um, I did it inside the exhibition space at Teatamira in Queenstown. So they got to see me in the context of my works but I also took a little opportunity to talk to them about accessibility in their line of work and how they can think about that every day and talk to their clients about it, even if they don't think that their client has access needs, because sometimes you can't tell if mm. a person has access needs. Yeah. Um, like you wouldn't look at me and think, yeah, she's got access needs, but I've got a lot of access needs. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, yeah, I kind of used it to to open the discussion with this group who really has the potential to make a big impact to their clients in that space. So it was a great talk and I loved it. That's fun. And is it, is it well received when you do those kinds of talks? Yeah, it is. I generally get people um, staying behind at the end to, you know, say thank you and um, maybe ask some follow-up questions that they weren't confident enough to ask during the session. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm quite an informal speaker in an artist talk setting I encourage questions at the time and just allow people to kind of start a discussion so yeah generally quite well received fabulous um I'm gonna give us a quick break by playing a song uh, and when we come back we can talk more about your installation that's going to Nelson Arts Festival and about you know being a cool artist in Wellington and how fun that is <laughs> So here, uh, listeners, is a great song that I heard on the radio over the weekend and had to play for you. Um, this is by Jordan with a Y, and it is called Romati. Kua <laughs> 
Welcome back. It's Wellington Access Radio, 106.1 FM. I'm Laura in the studio with Bailey Lobb. 
talking about her incredible installation art and um, bright colors and huge um, works of art that she works on. <laughs> um, I wanted to give you a chance to talk more about what you're doing at the Nelson Arts Festival, which I think is the next the next big installation that you're working on. Um, yes. Yeah, tell me what that includes. Okay, so for Nelson Arts Festival, I'm presenting um, two exhibitions under the single name of Sensory Self Portraits. Um, so the whole uh, installation from In Bathing Basque will be going to Nelson. So that's the bright bubbles that people can get inside. And did that originate from your Queenstown show? Uh, no, that one originated at Toy Poniki in Wellington. Oh, wonderful. So it was actually Great. first exhibited here. And then a year later, it went to Queenstown. Lovely. Um, and then it'll be in Nelson. Since then, it's also parts of it have gone to Australia. Um, and it's also been parts of it have been shown in Auckland. So it's kind of tripping around a little bit, which is really nice because it gives um, me the opportunity to see how really diverse audiences are responding to that work, Yeah. Um, which I love to see. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. So, yeah, so that, that whole exhibition will be there in the front two galleries. Um, and then I'll also be presenting a new installation work called How Do You Sleep at Night? Um, and that work is really about how I sleep at night. <laughs> um, so when I was writing up the kind of concept for it, I said, how do you sleep at night? And then I just said, badly. Um, so I have really, um, a lot of sensory, um, overload issues at night. I get really overwhelmed by the temperature cause you know, it might be too hot or too cold and I'm very restless and I need to have the right amount of light and the right amount of sound and my hair can't be touching me. And <laughs> it's a lot. And I thought, you know, for a while I'd been wanting to explore sleep in my practice because it's such a fundamental thing that, you know, everybody has to sleep. And I wanted to look at what that looked like from an accessibility perspective. What are the supports that I need mm -hmm. in order to get a good night's sleep? So I'm making um, a weighted blanket, which is going to be about eight kilos. Um, it's going to have 47,000 glass beads on it. <laughs> So that is what I'm currently working on, the knitting machine. Wow. Um, and there'll also be soft sculptures that are postural, so to hold my body in a certain position while I'm sleeping, you know, maybe to raise my legs off the mattress, um, that kind of thing. And then there'll be the kind of general sensory support, so eye masks, earplugs, um, hair covers, and... You know, all of those kinds of things that help prepare me for bed. Um, so there is a live performance that will be happening or multiple live performances. And I will be coming into the gallery doing my night routine. So um, getting out my extra movement that I might need to or, you know, it will vary day to day because every day it's different. Um, and then I will be gathering up the supports that I need that day and going to sleep in the gallery space. So it'll be interesting. It's a little bit experimental. Um, and I hope that people, you know, come and see it and enjoy and, and think more about 
yeah, what, what it means to need supports to go to sleep, what it means when sleep is not your friend, because um, I know a lot of people love sleep and that's not ever been my relationship with sleep. So mm. it's, it's an interesting thing for me to start exploring. So that sounds wild. <laughs> so you are, do you think you'll be able to fall asleep? I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite a napper. So, you know, I often find it much easier to fall asleep during the day. Um, I'm actually better when there's a bit of light, black, complete blackout is um, quite difficult for me to sleep mm. in. Um, so I feel like I might have more luck during the daytime performances actually getting to sleep than in the evening ones, because I also have, um, kind of a slight sleep phase disruption type thing going on where I get a second wind really early in the evening. (laughs) So I become quite, you know, active. And so I think I'll, yeah, I'll definitely have more luck actually getting to sleep during the day. That is that is so interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is so interesting. I think it's so cool to explore sleep because it's like, obviously, everyone needs to go to sleep and everyone has their own unique sort of um, like patterns and like like things that they do around sleep. And it's all quite secretive and personal, but you're sort of like pulling pulling back the pulling back the covers on that and showing the sleeping covers and and showing a, a, quite a personal view of like all of the things that are involved in your sleep. Yeah, it's something that um because I've had like kind of chronic insomnia since I was very young and my sleep in the last few years has been much better because I've got all of these supports and I've got a really strong routine and um you know, understanding the difference that sleep supports have made from me, non-medical sleep supports, because I also did used to have to take um, medication to sleep. And now I don't have to do that because I have all of these other sleep supports and it's not guaranteed. You know, I still have crappy night's sleep <laughs> every now and again, but for the most part, these supports have made a huge difference. And so kind of sharing that and, yeah, starting that conversation around like, what does it actually take to get a good night's sleep is something that I'm really interested in. I know a lot of people that sleep badly Hmm. on a regular basis. And I think we get used to sleeping badly and then we're like, that's just how we sleep. But there are things that we can do that even if we don't get a better night's sleep, we might have a more comfortable time in bed. (laughs) Yeah. That's a that's a really cool sort of addition to I guess the the whole the whole uh, exploration uh, that that your your art sort of captures. Um, is there any are there any other exhibitions coming down the track? And including, I'm quite interested if there's going to be anything in Wellington. So I don't currently have anything planned for Wellington. Oh, we'll just cut but, that cut that part from the podcast. <laughs> but I am very open to any opportunities in Wellington. Um, at the moment, I'm kind of following my nose a bit because I am very busy. Yeah. But there is one gallery that I would love to exhibit in. Um, oh, it's a wish list. It's a wish list. Yeah. So I hope you're listening. Um, and that's the Douse because I think they have an amazing program. They often show really experimental works. They have had a lot of textile works recently. Um, and I would love to have the opportunity to be part of your cohort at some point in the future. 
Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, very good. There's a little challenge to the Dows out there. Um, I know they're, you know, friends of the podcast. Oh, they have been on B-Side Stories before, so that's it's a, it's a good connection. Um, anything else that you're planning for beyond the Nelson Arts Festival? Uh, so I do have um, work coming up in a group exhibition in the Blue Mountains in Australia. That's so cool. Um, yeah, so because I did my study in Sydney, I've done quite a lot of exhibitions in Australia and I have quite a few connections over there. So that is something that's still, um, yeah, still going for me. And that's going to be an exciting exhibition because it is all artists who are neurodivergent. Um, so a really nice uh, place for me to explore some new ideas in my work as well. Cool. Um, let's talk about that term that you used. Um, do you describe yourself as neurodivergent? Oh, you just did. And uh, what what do the terms neurodiverse and neurodivergent mean? They're it's kind of um, they're having a moment right now. Everyone's talking about um, neurodiversity. So yeah. explain that for me. Cool. Um, yeah. So I do consider myself to be neurodivergent. I'm autistic, um, and neurodivergent really just means that your brain kind of diverges from the norm. So you, your brain works a little bit differently. Um, neurodiversity is often used interchangeably with neurodivergent, but they're actually two different terms. So neurodivergent is an individual term. So I, as an autistic person, am neurodivergent. Um, if I was sitting in a room with someone who was not neurodivergent, so someone who had um, what society would consider to be typical functioning, then the room, the, the group of us would be neurodiverse. So I like to kind of reference biodiversity in relation to neurodiversity. Um, and actually the exhibition I was in earlier this year had a really good theme around biodiversity and neurodiversity and understanding the neurodiverse experience through biodiversity um and so yeah neuro to be neurodiverse is to be a collective um because one individual can't be neurodiverse um so yeah going back to the biodiversity it's kind of the same um so one you know any one plant will thrive in particular environment particular conditions um, and that that plant needs those things. Another plant will need something completely different. Um, and that's what we are as neurodivergent humans within the neurodiversity framework. So you might need something completely different to thrive than I do. And that's totally cool. Um, we just need to work out what it is that we all need to thrive so that we can be the best little plants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So I wanted to ask you about some specific terms that get, get used around um, neuro, neurodivergence, um, just out of personal curiosity. I hope I know so. the answers. <laughs> <laughs> so this is something you have um, talked about on your website and stuff, but what is um, stimming? What's that mean? So stimming is um, it's a self-regulation practice, so it's really adding stimulation um, to whatever is happening right now. So um, in the studio, you guys can't see it, but Laura can. I have a ring that I'm playing with. It's a ceramic ring. It's shiny on one side and it has an unglazed edge on the other side. So 
I am twirling that and touching both sides of that ring and that helps me to stay focused on the conversation that we're having. So it's a small stim. Um, I have some big stims as well. So at home and when I'm really restless, I might throw myself around the house um, or dance. And yeah, so it it really varies. Stimming is also quite um, specific to the person. I also do have some vocal stims where I might click or pop. Um, And yeah, they're all about helping to regulate. um, And it's, it's a little bit of... I think of it almost as like a pleasure-seeking where that thing feels good to do, so you keep doing it. Hmm. Um, everybody stims. So some people are surprised to find that everybody stims, but if you hum, you pace, or you know, you twirl your pen or your hair or you tap on the table, those are all stims. Those are things that are helping you regulate, um, and they might be small stims, um, but they're still stims. Wow. So th- that's... Um didn't quite realize that. So I have a, a habit that I try to avoid, especially on the radio, of clicking my pen. And yeah. I'll often break work pens because I click them constantly. Click, click, click. Yeah. Is it the same? So you're stimming. S- yeah. Same so sort of thing that I'm The managing. clicking that you're doing there is providing some sort of input that you need in the moment. So it might be that you're focusing really hard or you'll probably notice that there's a pattern of when you click. Um, and for me, often stimming is, I I kind of have, um, stims, stims when I am overwhelmed and that will be kind of a specific set. And then there might be some that are more focus oriented. Um, for example, I do really well in long work meetings when I'm allowed to knit. Um, (laughs) and it just helps me focus because I'm doing something with my hands and I'm less prone to distraction. So, yeah, most stims have a, a pattern or a purpose to them, but you just might not be aware of it at the time. Wow. Uh, okay, another question. What is masking? Ah, so masking is um, when you hide the neurodivergent traits. Um, so... But it's not just for neurodivergent people because some people who are not neurodivergent also mask. Um, it's really about being the version of yourself that other people are expecting to see right now and is going to make other people most comfortable. So um, it's it's quite hard to describe actually. <laughs> but um, for me, one of the things... Um, that comes out when I'm masking quite heavily is that I am very bubbly um, and I'm actually a lot less bubbly when I'm at home by myself (laughs) Um, and or when I'm at home with my loved ones. Um, When we were all working from home during the pandemic, um, my partner kind of turned to me one day and she's like, who is that? And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) She's like, well, you were just on a phone call and like, I don't really know that person. <laughs> and I, I didn't realize that my workplace persona was heavy enough that it was a completely different version of myself that she'd never met before. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's really showing the version of you, which might be really far away from who you actually are as a person. 
so that other people are comfortable with who you are. Yeah. And I guess is it is it a bad thing or is it is it just something to be aware of or is it just an exhausting thing? I, I guess how should I think about that? Should I think about it as like negative or just a fact of life? So masking is kind of like a double-edged sword. So it enables me to do some things that if I wasn't masking, it would be a lot harder to do. It would be a lot harder to do this radio interview if I wasn't masking. Um, but at the same time, it is really exhausting to the point where um, because it it, it utilises um, all of my learned skills um, and the type of communication that's not necessarily natural to me, um, I will find it much harder to um, communicate after the interview. So I'll have a couple of hours where my communication is really low mm. um, and I might get a hangover. So, um, <laughs> Like a headache? Like, ugh, yeah, okay. so I might get a headache and feel nauseous and wow. just really need to kind of shut down for a bit. Wow. Um, so I... Um, I, I've masked heavily my whole life. I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. Um, and I've also had chronic pain and chronic fatigue for at least 15 years as a result of masking. Hmm. So what I've found since my, um, since being confirmed autistic and since starting to, um, understand what it's like to live without a mask 24 seven, I, actually have less pain um, and I'm less tired on the days when I don't mask as completely. So for me, it's really um, important to not mask continuously. Um, But it is also, you know, I have to acknowledge that there is a privilege to being able to mask because that's why I have a day job and that's why I can do some of the things that I can do. Not everybody can mask. And for some people, the inability to mask can be really dangerous. Um, if you think about countries that have, you know, a lot of racism, if you are a, a black male in America who can't mask, you have a much higher likelihood of having a run-in with the police that ends in your death. So it is a privilege, but it is also really hard. So there's a lot. Masking is, it's yeah. Wow. There's a lot in there. Yeah. <laughs> but it is also the reason why autistic people can make excellent actors because they are acting, like we're acting all day, every day. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's for some people who go into acting, it's it's an incredible gift as well. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like when you just mentioned your formal diagnosis, like it sounds like that was quite a powerful thing for you or that like kind of helped you in in a lot of ways yeah hugely hugely helpful um I wish there was better access to it for everyone um because it's really helped me to understand the impact of pushing through and of masking and of and of doing all of these things that my body and my brain is screaming out not to do (laughs) so I've had a real adjustment period where I've had to you know, get used to um, things that I was taking for granted before and there are some things that are a lot harder now than they were because I'm conscious of the impact that those things will have on me later. Mm. But at the same time, 
I have so many more tools now than I did before. Um, and those tools are giving me a significantly better quality of life on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, incredible. It's great that people are learning more, um, speaking more and finding different ways to, I guess, um, think about the way their brain works differently. Yeah, that's been quite powerful lately. Hey, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, Wellington as well. Um, what's it like being based in Wellington? Is this a pretty great place to be an artist? So I love Wellington. Yay. <laughs> I absolutely love it here. I love like the ruggedness of the landscape around Wellington. Um, I even love the weather, which I know a lot of people say is a downside to Wellington. But, you know, there's something really magical about being out in the rain and the wind and like it's so chaotic and you don't get that anywhere else. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I love it as a place to create art as well. The community here is extremely welcoming yeah. and I've made so many great connections since I've moved back to Wellington. It's awesome. Um, yeah, I love it. Awesome. And okay, so uh, this is a little bit of a question that some people have been asking of all of our guests, but do you have a favorite place in Wellington? I do. Nice. Um, my favorite place is in the sea at Island Bay. It is beautiful. Um, there are a group of people that go down and do sunrise swims, and wow. I highly recommend it if you haven't done it. It is because of the way the light comes around into Island Bay, it is like you are bathing in the sunrise. Mm. The The sea is just amazing colours. Yes, it's cold, but you get used to it. <laughs> um, I'm also a cold seeker, so, um, it, you know, I can handle temperatures that some people can't, so I should, should just say it is quite cold. Um, but it is absolutely stunning, and I love it. That is um an invitation for the brave out there, the sunrise swims. Um, that's incredible, Bailey. Thank you for coming to talk to us. How can people learn more about you or find you online? Um, so I have a website. It's just baileylob.com. Um, and I'm also on Instagram just at bay, baileylob. Yeah, at baileylob. Um, I keep it fairly consistent. Um, so those are kind of the best two ways. I do have... A, a list that you can sign up to on my website if you want to find out things first about nice. what's happening. Um, I, I don't really send out many newsletters, so it's it's only when there is actually something happening. Um, so if you want to sign up to that, feel free, but otherwise peruse the website at your leisure. Fabulous. Thank you for coming on B-Side Stories, telling a bit about your story and sharing some amazing photos with us as well of your incredible, colorful artwork. Thanks for having me. I will um, send us out with a jazz classic uh, performed by Farimako Black. Um, this is Stormy Weather. Thank you.
program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.